0: The following audio resource is produced and distributed by Mark, Inc. Ministries. 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Contact us toll free at 1-877-MARK-INC. Visit us on the web at markinc.org.
1: He said, when I got to the side of the car, your son was leaning back. He was resting in the seat. His head was on the headrest. His arms were folded in his lap. And his eyes were closed, but he had a smile on his face, which was an incredible thing to hear because Mark was known by his smile. This was a terrible accident. And for us, of course, we are looking for hope anywhere that we could find it. And a friend of ours who was one of the first medics on the scene, he was the first medic on Mark's side of the car. And when he opened the door, he realized it was our son Mark. And he also saw that smile. We really believe that at that moment of death, Mark saw something. And we think it was Jesus.
0: If you are listening to this message, it's probable that you are walking in the darkness of death. You have lost someone precious, and you don't know how you will face life without that person. Perhaps someone you love is facing this journey, and you want to better understand what they are going through and how you might help them. In this interview, you will hear Chuck and Sharon Betters describe the loss of their 16-year-old son Mark and his friend Kelly. Mark and Kelly died in a car accident 10 minutes after they left Mark's home. Only people who have experienced such sorrow can begin to understand the abyss and grief and the longing for hope. It's Chuck and Sharon's desire that this honest discussion of their journey will enable you to face the days ahead with courage and strength. Chuck and Sharon, everyone at some point in life faces the loss of a loved one. We will all die one day. And uh, all of us will go through times where we lose someone close to us. Uh, I remember my father saying once uh, years ago the worst punishment for a parent is to bury a child. Hmm. You've had to go through that and we'd like to talk today about how one deals with that. Hmm. Give us a little background about what happened when you lost your son Mark.
2: We were sitting as a family together and Mark was dating a a young girl. He was 16 and she was 16 on the evening of July the 6th. This was right on the heels of celebrating my daughter's birthday, which was on July the 4th. We'd had a big party at the house and Mark was, was there with Kelly, his friend, and they were watching TV in the other room. Kelly had a very strict curfew for getting home. And so when they left our house that night, it was about 10.30. And it took about a half hour to get her from our place to her place. And I remember Mark, when he came out to leave, he had a big grin on his face, as two teenagers would. He had just gotten his license. And out of all four of our children, he was the one I was least concerned about when it came to driving a car. Mark was the most controlled in the car. So he he was the one I was least concerned about. And he stood at the door that night, and he looked over at us, and he told us that he loved us, and he left, and we told him that we loved him. Both of us were sitting there. Sharon and I were both sitting in that room feeling the very same thing. We didn't realize it until the aftermath. For some reason, I felt like I should take Kelly home, that Mark was still too inexperienced a driver. Sharon, unbeknownst to me, was feeling the very same thing. But both of us concluded that it would be a real embarrassment to him if we were to suddenly stand up and say, well, Daddy's going to take your girlfriend home. So they left. We went upstairs to go to bed, but as with all of our children, we never went to sleep until all of them were in the house. We were in bed together watching something on TV, and the telephone rang. On the other end was the mother, of the girl wondering where they were. And I looked at the clock and realized that it was very, very close to the time that they should be getting in. I was absolutely unconcerned about it. Sharon had answered the phone, and, and I heard her say to the mother, they should be there any, any minute. A couple of minutes later, the phone rang again. Again, we assured them that it's, it's just a matter of a few minutes, they should be there any minute because they had left the house at 10.30, it's gonna be 11 o'clock before they get there. And then the phone rang a third time, and I heard my wife gasp. I heard her say, Is he all right? Mm. And I knew she wasn't talking to the parents. The tone of her voice and the gasp that she had and the pain that was there, she hung up the phone and she said, That was the hospital. And she didn't say it that way. She said, That was the hospital. Mark has been in an accident, and he's in critical condition. And the kids who were in the other room in, the, in their bedrooms heard that, and we bolted to our cars, and I drove the lead car with my wife, and she was crying hysterically, and, and I was trying to hold back and keep composed, and the kids were in their cars behind us. We passed the accident scene, and as we passed the accident scene, we saw that his car was on the other side of a multi-lane highway heading in the opposite direction of where he was supposed to be going. So clearly he had gone across the medial strip and was hit by oncoming traffic. There was nothing left to that car. And I remember grabbing my wife's leg when we saw the car, her tears became even more intense. And I grabbed her leg and I said, this is not good. And I think I knew at that point he was dead. Mm. I I really, as I look back on it, I think I knew then that he had not made it. And when we got to the hospital, we approached the uh, emergency room, and I had been there as a pastor dozens of times, and I knew their routine in that hospital. I knew that when you went up to the front desk, you had two different directions in which they could take you, to the right or to the left. If you went to the right, you were going back to see the patient. That meant to me that Mark would be still alive. If they took you to the left, that to me was what I called the death room. I knew back there were several death rooms where they would bring the family in and brief them that the person was dead. And we ran into the hospital. Sharon ran ahead of me, and I stood back about three, four paces because I wanted to see which direction that nurse moved toward. Sharon came to the front desk and announced uh, we are Mark Better's parents. Is he all right? And I saw her make that move to the left. And that's when I grabbed my wife and I hugged her real tight and I said to the nurse, I know the routine. Is he dead? And she looked at me and she shook her head yes. Hmm. And I asked, what about Kelly? And she said, she's dead too. And I'll never forget, my wife began to beat on my chest and just to cry and say no, no, no. And our kids came in, and it was hell. If hell is anything like this, I don't want to go there. There is an absolute sense of alienation, helplessness, and despair. You absolutely are exposed to the horrors of death. I took my family back one by one. I was the first to go back, and I went back to see my son. I just looked at him and I held him, and he was dead. I just kept saying to him, "What happened? What happened?" And then I looked to God and I said, "You have got to teach me that everything I've ever believed in my life about you is true. This mm-hmm. is where it's being tested." I remember bringing our children in. My son is six foot four inches tall, and he collapsed on the floor. Uh, he just couldn't. He couldn't go into the room. We called various family members who rushed to the hospital and. It was just a horrible, horrible nightmare. I I think the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my life was walk out of that hospital that night because by walking out of that hospital, I was acknowledging that he was dead. We went home to an empty house. Unbeknownst to us, without even knowing that the accident had happened, Kelly's father, after the second phone call by the mother, decided to go look for his daughter, and he did not know about the accident, he immediately, after he made a a, a primary search, went to the hospital. He came into the hospital to find out that his daughter was dead. That hospital that night was a place of wailing and mourning. And my family wailed. My son Dan wailed for four straight days. You could hear him two blocks away. He just wailed. Death is ugly. There is absolutely nothing pretty about death. Death is the enemy. When you walk through that and you experience that pain, you don't think you're going to even get to the next day. How are we going to make it to the next day?
0: What happened from there, Sharon?
1: Well, of course, the community of believers surrounded us. They rushed to the wound, and we had people who stepped right into the the needs that we had. They just took over our home and I don't know where all the food came from and where the people came from even the dog was taken care of by people who who didn't need to be told what to do in fact we could we experience a ministry of encouragement in a supernatural way I believe over the next not just the next days but people didn't forget they they hung in there with us for months and months and even years for me that night it's one of those things where you're you're surrounded by people but you feel completely alone mm-hmm. and that's how i felt in that hospital and and even harder was that uh, chuck's the pastor and even my family my our extended family not only our congregation but our families would if there's a problem you come to chuck because he's the pastor mm-hmm. but that night he was the dad and i could see the fear in the faces of the people that were depending on us who could we go to we were the pastor, and there were so many decisions. There were decisions we had to make. We we had no idea how to make those. We had never walked that way as the family before. That night, I, I stood there surrounded but alone, and I thought, Lord, I am not going to pretend to have faith in you. I'm a pastor's wife. I know how to be what people want me to be. I don't think I'm a hypocrite, but I know what people's expectations are. I know that people are going to be watching us, but I don't care. I'm a mother and I need to know that I'm not working up my faith. I need to know that if anybody sees any strength in me, it's because you did something in me. Because what I have always taught and believed is true. Because tonight I feel like it's a lie. I feel Mm. like what I've taught about you being able to mend a broken heart and bring beauty from ashes, that none of that's true. Because how in the world will you ever Mm. bring beauty from the ashes? of our family right now. You can't even describe it. And parents who have lost a child or, or any loss of one that you just is in your soul, you look for the words but you can't find them. You describe it and it's deeper and it's worse and it's and it's harder than any words could, dis- to, could that you could use.
0: It does sound like it, it is more than you can bear, but mm-hmm. yet God promises us he will not give us more than we can bear.
2: Mm-hmm. That verse uh, seemed to mock us. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, most of the scriptures, most of the hymns that we sing, hearing people talk about I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all, those hymns seemed to mock us. Uh, It was almost as though the scriptures and the prayers that were prayed and the hymns that were sung all through a megaphone were saying the same things that we were refusing to believe. And the reason for that was because the fatherhood of God and the fatherhood of a human being are kind of paralleled in your thinking. I'm thinking to myself, I would never, as a father, treat my children this way. Mm -hmm. You are my heavenly father. Why are you treating us this way? Why would you take our child from us? The answers that came back, the books that I read, the information that I gathered, all seemed to mock, uh, not intentionally but they came up short, because there was no satisfactory answer. Being in a room like we're in right now, we're in a well-lit studio room right now, and there's light all around us. People who have lost a loved one will tell you that the room seems dark. No matter how light it is, there's a, there's a haze, there's a darkness, there's a sense of, of emptiness in your stomach uh, where you think your, your life is going to end. This must be what it's like to die. Uh, How am I going to survive? How am I going to move on? As Christians, sometimes I think we are way too artificial and superficial when it comes to dealing with that ugly enemy. Even Jesus, when faced with death, when faced with what he was going to do on that cross, despaired to the point of bleeding and shedding blood from his brow, and he begged his father to find another way because death is an ugly enemy. And as we faced that enemy, the love of God seemed to dissipate. God didn't seem to be there. His love didn't seem to be genuine. And sharing those things over the over the 6 months after in the aftermath of our son's death, sharing my heart from the pulpit with people and and sharing those things honestly seemed to be freeing to the congregation. It gave them license to say, "Well, I felt that way too." Mm. I have felt alienated from God. There's nothing that is going to alienate you more than death does. Death is a terrible enemy that cuts you and alienates you, and you can be in a room full of people. Sharon just mentioned this. She did a wonderful job of explaining the loneliness in the presence of hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. You're just absolutely lonely because there's there's a part of you that's been cut away. People who have lost a loved one will tell you that there's that darkness, there's that alienation, there's... There are those questions. Why me? Uh, Why would you do this, Lord? I would never treat my children this way. And raising those questions, I think, is very much a part of the process God uses to bring the healing.
0: You're a pastor of a church. Did you ever want to give up?
2: Yes, I did. In fact, I remember one particular Sunday, I woke up very early in the morning, on Sunday morning, I decided to go out for a walk. And as I walked, I became angrier and angrier at God. In fact, I said things to him that that, that amounted to something like this. You don't deserve me. I am a faithful servant of yours. I've been faithful for so many years. I've preached your word. I've put up with all of your people. Your people can be very mean and vicious, and, and I've loved you, and I've preached grace, and I've preached the wonderful doctrines of our faith, and so you're not getting me anymore. And there was that almost that shaking of my fist in God's face And I walked my neighborhood early in the morning, and I was yelling those things Hmm. out loud. I can't imagine what some of the neighbors must have thought. And I even said this. I said, I am not going to church this morning, and I'm not going to preach. And when they show up for church, Lord, then maybe you ought to answer the question why the preacher isn't there, because I'm not going. And I decided that morning, about 6 o'clock in the morning, I was boycotting church. I got to tell you, I was angry. I was one angry man more disappointed in the love of God than anything. And the still small voice, I mean, it's almost like when Sharon beat on my chest that night, there was nothing I could do, no words I could say that were going to make her feel better. I just held her and let her beat. And she pounded on my chest, and that day in that walk in my development, I pounded on God's chest, Mm -hmm. and he just held me. Now, after I settled down a little bit, he said, stop here in front of this house. And when I say he said, I'm not talking about an audible voice, but it was a clear voice in my spirit. He said, stop here in front of this house. Who lives there? And I answered him, so-and-so lives there. He said, pray for them. And he moved me to the next house. Who lives there? Pray for them. And he moved me from house to house, and I, I ended up on a prayer walk that morning. And that is what pulled me out of that period of disappointment and anger with God. He brought me outside of myself and ministered to others he said here here is how you're going to overcome this minister to others and i began to pray for the very people i would be preaching to that morning and i stood up in the church that sunday and told the congregation that story Hmm. told them everything i've just told you it was and continues to be a very transparent pulpit and i fight cliches in the church i fight that plasticize as i call it christianity and I want people to be real with their God. If you're disappointed, tell him.
0: It's okay to beat on God's chest.
2: Well, I've, he's not our father if we can't beat on his chest. If we cannot express who we are to him, we sit here as, as though he doesn't already know right. how we feel. Of right. course he knows how we feel.
1: I think he invites us to come to him. Uh, we wrote a book called Treasures of Faith a few years ago, and uh, one of the uh, the passages, it's from Hebrews chapter 11, but the mm-hmm. context is – that the book of Hebrews was written to people who wanted to quit. And they were terrified, they were scared, they were being persecuted, and and martyrdom was closing in. And some were already leaving the church, and God's, God's exhortation to them through the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 was, come confidently into the presence of God. And when you know that the people he was writing to were people who were asking those very questions, where is God? This isn't what I signed up for. You know, I didn't think that this is what Christianity was going to be like he is saying run to the very one that you are questioning the one who seems so far away go into his presence and when you leave there remember that he will keep his promises about a month after uh, mark's death we were chuck and i were just such a mess and it was late it was a a sunday night i think and we didn't know where to turn i thought i was losing my mind Hmm. and. He said, we need to go where the Word is going to be preached. We we did know that. Even though we were questioning the Word, we knew that was our only hope. Mm -hmm. And so we went to a local Bible conference and uh, settled in expecting that God was going to really bless us. And the preacher got up. The title of his message was How to Live a Long Life. And I knew right away I was going to be mad. And his whole theology was so skewed. It Mm. was, you know, if you have faith, God owes you. Mm. And after the service Chuck actually had to hold me back. I wanted to get up in that man's face and I have tell him I've
2: never seen her that angry. I wanted to If say, I didn't hold her back, I think she would have gone up there and clawed him. his face
1: off. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted I wanted to tell him I'm so glad you're not my pastor. What mm-hmm. hope have you given? Wasn't Jesus a young man? You know, where what about Hebrews chapter 11, you know, where people mm-hmm. suffered because of their faith and but we left that night in worse shape than when we came.
2: It was one of those situations I talked about earlier where the apparent word seemed to mock.
1: Yes. I just, I wanted to die and I thought death would be better. I can't live mm-hmm. like this. I had very little hope. But we also left with the phone number of a woman who has lost three sons. We had a mutual friend and she told our mutual friend give them our phone number, tell them to call me anytime. And the next morning I got up, I, was, I went to bed crying, I got up crying and I called this woman It was early in the morning i didn't realize she lived in california we live in delaware so i got her up and i told her who i was she knew who i was she recognized who i was and i said i feel like i'm going crazy i described how i felt and i said what's worse almost than losing mark is i don't know who jesus is anymore i don't know who god is and i'm i'm afraid she said you are exactly where you need to be you're being Mm -hmm. honest with god He is not afraid of your questions. He doesn't need anyone to defend him. He invites your questions. And she said, if you continue to be honest in your journey, when you get to the other side of this journey, you're going to understand God's love in a way you never have before. To this day, I can remember standing there in the kitchen and thinking, I don't even know what that word love means. And I said that to her, and she said, I know that, but that's all right. He is holding you tightly in his grip. And that gave me the freedom to be honest as a woman, as a mother, not as a pastor's wife, but as a mother, and to honestly go to the Lord with these questions and not to feel as though I was a heretic, but as a daughter who didn't understand her daddy. And that's how I felt. I thought I knew him, but suddenly I didn't know him anymore.
0: What about those people who don't even consider themselves Christians who are listening in right now and said, if this is your God, I don't want to have anything to do with him. How would you respond to them?
2: I would say to them, I understand how you feel. And that is a normal human response because we have been conditioned in our lives to believe that the absence of pain is the reason for our existence, that the longer we live, the less pain we ought to have, which is completely the opposite of what the realities are. We have been conditioned to believe in our society that God owes us. He's a benevolent God. He's all love. He's this ushy, gushy, sentimental God who makes sure that all of our needs are met, kind of a great big Santa Claus up in the sky. I remember for years when people would ask or raise that kind of a question, my my pat response, which is still my pat response, went something like this. When you questioned, where is God?, when something like that horrible happens to you, when something horrible happens to you, the answer to that question is he is in the same place that he was when his son was put on the cross. The greatest theological understanding somebody who questions God ought to have goes something like this. When Jesus died on the cross, he was freely offered up by his father. His father could have stopped this Jesus said there were 12 legions of angels with swords drawn, ready at any moment to deliver Christ from that cross. But he chose to turn his back on his only son and allow him to be butchered on that cross for my sins. He did that in love. The great love of God and the justice of God is married on the cross. And then we are told in his word that as his followers, we too ought to be willing to pick up our cross and follow him. When we look at our lives, we live for 60, 70, 80 years. The Bible tells us perchance 80 years we live. And then we are going to spend eternity somewhere. We're either going to spend eternity with Christ in glory or we're gonna spend eternity in hell. And eternity compared to the 60, 70, or 80 years is something we can't even comprehend. The decisions I make in this life affect my eternal destiny, where I will spend eternity. And so I have to raise my eyes from seeing the cancer and the death and the despair and the poverty and the injustice and the sinfulness of the fallen world, the broken world in which we live, where death entered as the result of the curse that God placed on the human race for its disobedience to him. I have to raise my eyes to see the bigger picture, that God is building this wonderful, Masterpiece! This wonderful mosaic, this wonderful tapestry, as Edith Schaeffer used to call it, this this beautiful tapestry where we can only see the underside of the tapestry. We can only see all the strings hanging down, and their various colors, but there doesn't seem to be any pattern, and they look confused. And yet, when you stand up above, on the other side, and see life from God's eternal perspective. Then you say, ah, that's that's what he was doing. That's how that puzzle part fits. There's no answer anybody's gonna be able to give us that's gonna make us just absolutely feel better that we've lost our child. There's nothing you could say or the greatest theologian who ever lived could say that's gonna make us feel better in the sense that, well, oh, it's okay. Death has hit your home, that's all right, praise the Lord. Because no matter what you say, it's gonna come up short. And the reason for that is this is not what God intended for us. This life is not all there is. And so I would say to that person who is really struggling with, you know, Lord, what are you doing here? I would say to that person, God is doing something tremendously, magnanimous, above all you ask or think. He is putting together this beautiful, beautiful mosaic. And I'll tell you one verse, Tom, that really clung to me, and I clung to it, It comes out of the book of Joel where God says, I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten, that great and that mighty locust, and here's the key, which I have sent. God made that promise to me. He will not be debtor to me. He will not owe me. God owes me nothing. I cannot outgive God. And one day, all these years that we've lost with Mark will be restored.
0: Mark was 16 years old when he and Kelly were in a fatal car accident, two young people that were in the prime of life, I know Mark was a Christian. She was a believer as well. We've talked about what it was like for you. What does the Bible say it was like for those two believers as they were ushered into eternity?
1: Several days after the accident, a stranger came to our door, and he asked for Chuck, and he said, I don't want to intrude on your family at this terrible time, but I was the first person to your son's side of the car at the accident scene. And I wanted to give you some information that I think will help you in the days ahead. His own family had lost family members in an accident. They didn't know whether they had suffered, and it always haunted them. He said, when I got to the side of the car, your son was leaning back. The seat was in in like a, he was resting in the seat. His head was on the headrest. His arms were folded in his lap, and his eyes were closed, but he had a smile on his face which was an incredible thing to hear because Mark was known by his smile. He had a signature smile. This was a terrible accident. And for us, of course, we are looking for hope anywhere that we could find it. Chuck told this story to our congregation and a friend of ours who was one of the first medics on the scene, he was the first medic on Mark's side of the car and when he opened the door he realized it was our son Mark who was also in his youth group and he also saw that smile and asked his partner if he saw the smile because he couldn't really believe it was there and when chuck told that story in church he came to us and he said i want to confirm for you mark was smiling we really believe that at that moment of death mark saw something and we think it was jesus Mm. who was coming for kelly and mark all of our lives we have believed that no child of God dies alone that Jesus says I'm leaving but I'm coming back for you and we believe at that very moment at that at that moment where that accident occurred that's a holy sacred place where Jesus met Mark and Kelly in in the process of preparing for his service our kids asked us to listen to a song called the last time I fall. And Mark was a typical 16-year-old. He was a child of God, but he was ornery, and he would get into trouble, and it seems like he was always getting caught. And one particular time where he got caught a few years before his, he went to heaven, he was a mess. And he, he all of a sudden said, I can't do anything good, I'm bad, 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 I'm always bad. And Chuck took that opportunity to confirm his relationship to Christ and, and repentance and all of that. But the kids remembered that. Mark was always struggling with that. And they said, Mom and Dad, you have to listen to this song. The words were that he will see the last time I fall. I fall on this earth again and again. I mess up. I fail. But he will see the last time I fall, and it will be in adoration Mm. of my Savior. And we just, you know, we believe that's what happened. Mm. We believe that Mark fell one more time, and it was in adoration of his Savior.
2: And that is why we don't spend a whole lot of time at the cemetery. We will go there. In fact, I think my wife and I in these, in these years that have passed, we have been to that cemetery together maybe two times. And both of those times were because I buried somebody else adjacent to him. One time was Sharon's mom. When Sharon's mom went home to be with the Lord, she's buried right next to Mark. But the accident scene is where we go. We have crosses mm. erected there. Because to us, that's where the celebration occurred. Those two crosses that sit along that highway are where we put the wreaths and the flowers during the special times of the year. They are our testimony of what took place on that brutal night. Although it was brutal, this young man had a smile on his face. I don't know who that man was that came to our door that day. I've not seen him before. I've never seen him since. I don't know who he was, but he had a message for us that night. And that message was, your son was smiling. How do you smile when you're about to die? Unless you see something. And I believe you need to listen very closely to people who are dying, uh, whether it's, you know, sudden or long-term illness or whatever. Listen closely, because I believe they see things and hear things the rest of us do not. They're that much closer to that very thin veil that separates our visible world from the invisible world.
0: Have you kept in touch with Kelly's family?
1: Yes, we don't get together uh, very often, but at at the birthdays and the anniversary of our children's home going, capital H, to heaven, we uh, correspond uh, send Cards. One year when we went to the crosses to put uh, flowers on the cross, Kelly's mom and dad were there, Hmm. and we held hands and prayed together on the side of the road. Their other daughter, Kim, in the aftermath became very close to our kids. In the first year, they really needed each other because no one else could understand what they had been through. So it's, it, it, but it's painful. It's painful for all of us, I think, because it's, it's a sweet thing to be able to share our love for our kids, but it's painful to know what our kids have experienced.
0: Chuck, I would like to ask you a follow-up question concerning something that you had said that happened the night of Mark's accident. It's not an easy question, but I do think it's one that needs to be asked. You shared that on the night of Mark's accident, both you and Sharon separately thought that you and not Mark should have driven Kelly home yet you didn't follow through on that thought you didn't follow through with that inclination how has that troubled you and have you ever thought that had you been obedient you might have prevented that accident and then lastly what would you say to others who might feel a sense of guilt because they somehow think that they might have prevented an accident had they just acted in a different manner
2: Tom, I really do appreciate that question, and uh, certainly it is a heart-wrenching question for me to answer. I remember talking with a another brother in the faith, another Christian man, who lost one of his children in a car accident. And he holds to a different point of view theologically than I do. He holds to the Arminian persuasion, which really focuses a lot of energy and attention and theology around the doctrine of man's free will. That somehow or another, what we do controls what God does. And I know that short term... The guilt that Sharon and I had over that night, wondering if there was something we could have done to stop that. Short term, it was probably more painful than my brother in the faith has or had. But long term, understanding the sovereignty of God, understanding that God is the one who ultimately decides the issues of faith, the issues of life, the issues of death that ultimately it is God who determines our days, that there's not one thing we can do to add one single day to our lives. In fact, he told us in Matthew, we are not to worry about tomorrow because sufficient are the worries of this day. And and what will it profit us by worrying? We cannot add, as the King James Version says, one cubit to our stature, which literally means one day to our lives. And so long term, I believe a faith in the sovereignty of God is a soothing grace that God gives us because we understand that God was the one who controlled the circumstances of that night. I can go back and I can show you the actual accident site where prior to Mark crossing the highway, because you need to understand he was killed by going across the highway and hit by oncoming traffic that was going in the opposite direction he was originally traveling, prior to that accident site, there, were, there are guardrails along that highway After that accident site, there are guardrails along that highway, but there's a very small section of that highway that it took him 1.2 seconds to get through that had no guardrails. Had there been guardrails, who knows what would have happened, but it seems as though God intentionally designed that that was the day and that was the hour and that was the location he was going to take Mark home to be with him. Oh, there are so many other circumstances I could tell you about that would uh, make it very, very clear that God was in control of that night. Our faith in the sovereignty of God, our faith in the absolute belief in, in His his sovereign rule over the details of our lives have sustained us more so, I think, than the persuasion that others might have that says, Somehow or another, we're in control of these issues. Somehow or another, it's man's free will that makes these determinations. I think it was natural for Sharon and I to question ourselves. I think it was a natural thing for parents who are protective of their children. All of their lives, we protect them. So I think it was a natural thing for us to to wonder, was there something we could have done to stop this? The conclusion of the matter, as we look back some years later, is this was God's timing for The better's family. This was his plan and his purpose, and one day he will make it clear to us why he took our son at 16 years of age. I don't think there's any earthly explanation that someone could give us now that would make sense for us, but one day God will unpack all of those details for us and we will see very clearly why it happened the way it did that night. So, in retrospect, I think us questioning and not acting on the need to take Mark and to take his girlfriend home that night. The fact that we didn't act was God inhibiting us from doing so, that it was a natural thing for us to think, but God had other plans. Here
0: it is many years later. What advice would you give to someone who has just lost a loved one of what they should do to get through these very, very dark days? How do they get through the next several weeks or
1: months? Several things that I've learned. One of the things is Chuck and I have a terrific marriage, and that night when he reached over and took my leg and said, This isn't good, somehow I knew he was not going to be able to fix this. Somehow I knew that Mark was gone, and somehow I knew that my rock, Chuck, would not be able to fix this. So when I lost Mark, I also lost part of my husband. He was very honest in saying, I have nothing to give except for my preaching on Sunday mornings. Listen to what I say, and that is what God is telling me, and that's all I have." That was very difficult initially because I wanted him to help me. I wanted him to tell me it was going to be all right. And I think it's important for couples to understand that you're going to grieve differently, and you cannot depend on your spouse to fix you or to make this better. Their hearts are just as shattered as yours. And so you have to give the freedom for them to grieve the way that they need to grieve. So that to me is extremely important. But for me, I needed someone that was going to satisfy that ache. And I believe that the Lord used that loneliness to draw me to himself, to say, you have depended on your husband too much. In the past Mm -hmm. You have expected him To take care of things That I should be Taking care of Mm -hmm. It was not fun For me to To understand this So every morning Even though I felt that the scriptures Were like dry toast It just stuck in my throat I knew that I needed To read them And every morning I would get up, and I would have some time by myself, and I would write out how I felt in my journal, and I would be as honest as I could be and just say, this is a lousy day, you know, I just want to scream and scream and scream and all those things. And then I would read the psalm that corresponded with that date and the proverbs that corresponded with that date. And then I would read from my utmost for his highest and streams in the desert. And often God would speak to me through those passages not at first but in time and so to me and i know chuck would agree too is that our worldview had to kick in god's word was the only thing that would not change he could chuck would, could walk out the door and may never come back if mm-hmm. he could be taken one of our other children could be taken everything was up for grabs except god's word And so, the first thing I would say is you must be committed to the truth of God's word, even if it does not seem to touch your soul in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It will.
2: I would add to that, there are some very, and I need to be careful here because I know how this can be interpreted, but when people face death, there are some strange things that occur, circumstances, events, inexplicable things that I believe are God's way of saying, I'm here. Even though it's dark in this room, I'm here, I'm here. I don't want to get into the details of what those things were for us, but when we sit down and we talk to different people who've lost loved ones, and we share some of those things with them, they breathe a sigh of relief, thinking Mm -hmm. to themselves, well, I thought I was crazy. I'm so glad you shared that. Here's what I've experienced. And so I would encourage those who have recently lost a loved one to journal, to mark those things down. Put them down on, in a book somewhere. Write them down so that two, three, four months from now or six years from now, you can go back and you can review the things that God began to show you. I remember meeting with a pastor that I trust dearly. I, I really didn't have anybody that I could go to and share my heart, even those, those strange occurrences or especially those moments of anger against God. I met with this one pastor who's probably one of the most brilliant men in our denomination. And I shared with him what I had seen, what I had experienced, strange phenomenon that took place, and the issues of faith I was struggling with. And I remember him saying to me, Chuck, there's a room in your life called the grief room. You're the only one that has a key to it. He said, you need to give yourself permission to go into that grief room. Hear what God has to say. Vent what you have to say. And then come back out of that grief room. Because God is going to show you incredible things in the years to come in the darkness. When you think no one's there, when the lights aren't on, he's going to show you things that you did not know before. And I have found that to be true. I can't sit here today and say, praise the Lord, thank you that you took my son. There's no explanation that anybody's going to be able to give me that's going to satisfy me at that point. Or, Lord, give me five minutes with my son. Let me see him and toying with such things as uh, necromancy and soothsayers and some of these people that are on TV calling back the dead, please avoid them. Please steer clear Mm -hmm. of these people. These are forbidden arts in the scriptures. These are not gentle, good, uh, heavenly spirits. These are evil spirits that are speaking to you, and you steer clear from those. And I remember thinking that if I could just have two minutes, just five minutes, just five seconds, and then realizing well, if, if God gave me those five minutes, would that be enough? Or would I want five more or ten more? And avoiding those things that the Scripture clearly forbids and seeking to have an intimacy with the Lord. And whatever God chooses to show you in those moments, He'll show you. Now, I have found as time has gone on, those occurrences, those uh, events, those mysterious things that happened have have become fewer and fewer. It's almost as though we're in that painful surgery, with no anesthesia, and we're bleeding, and we're being cut open, and it hurts like mad. God shows us things that we would not otherwise know and understand. But then as time goes on, the wounds begin to heal. I remember going down to cut some wood with an old farmer. This man lost a child who was 19 from a heart disease. This was his only son, and he loved that boy. And I remember counseling him before we lost our son. I, I counseled him on, on his loss. He and I were down cutting wood, and he could see that, that I was about to lose it. And he, he turned off the machine, and he looked at me. He said, you all right? And I said to him, brother, somebody has to tell me. Somebody has to tell me that this is going to get better, that I'm not always going to feel this way. Now, this is a man who doesn't show his emotions. He came over to me, put his hands on my shoulder. He said, look at me. He says, look into my eyes. And with those big strong hands holding my shoulders and my tear-filled eyes, he said, look at me. I am ample testimony that it is going to get better. He said, you're not always going to feel the way you feel right now. That did a lot for me. Hmm. That, that was comforting. If, if someone who hadn't lost a loved one told me that, I would have written it off. I put that down in my journal. That's one of those things that God gave me at that moment. That man doesn't open up to anybody. And for him to be that vulnerable to me uh, was was a gift from God. And I'll never forget walking away from that with some hope. And I think that we need to journal those things. Put those things down because years from now, you're going to look back when you question God and God's going to show you, well, what did I do here? What did I do there? And, and how much time did we spend in that grief room together? God is faithful in that regard.
1: Just to follow up on that, Chuck, it's a perfect lead-in to that passage from Isaiah 45 that God gave me when I had breast cancer that I went back to, and it's like a life verse for me, where he says, I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name. And having seen the treasures that God gave to us when we were walking in the foreign land of cancer, I knew that he was going to give us treasures in the darkness, Mm -hmm. even though it was terribly uh, frustrating because I didn't understand him anymore. He gave us treasures. I'm working on a book right now called Treasures in Darkness, and I'm using my journal from those 10 years uh, of having been without Mark. And as I've been going back over it, I'm recognizing those fingerprints that he promised, those little treasures that only he could do, that would, would remind me, I am here, I know what's going on, I know how you're feeling, I know this is hard. When I first went back in my journal, I expected to see the picture of this, this angry, hateful, ugly woman with her fist up in God's face, and what I saw instead was a little girl who was crying and begging her father to help her understand what was happening in her life. And God, again and again, it seemed as though He would just hold me and just say, I know this hurts, but there is a purpose for it. And you will understand that purpose. One day, Chuck said, I think when we get to heaven, there's going to be a big banner that says, This is why. I said, The only problem is we won't care when we get to heaven. Right.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, for that person who's just lost a loved one who is still feeling that dreamlike state, you can say with absolute certainty, it will get better.
1: It will get better when you know Jesus as your personal Savior, and when you choose to walk a path of faith when it doesn't seem like there's any reason for faith, Hmm. it will get better. Because our faith tells us there is purpose in the darkness. God is not a God of accidents. He is a God of eternity, and he has purpose for us even when we feel like there is no purpose. I wasn't finished being Mark's mother. I wasn't finished raising him. Mm -hmm. What reason did I have to get up in the morning until I understood that my circumstances were my platform for glorifying God? That gave me purpose, and that is why I will say, It will get better Hmm. as you choose to trust Him day by day.
2: I know there are many people sitting out there who are listening to this that would maybe say something like, I would never be able to survive the loss of, and you fill in the blank, a a loved one, a child, a parent. And there's a sense in which we don't want to go there. Sharon and I belong to a club that nobody else wants to join. Parents who have lost children are in a special club all by themselves they don't want to be there and there there's a sense in which no we we can't survive that's so horrible it's such an invader i remember shortly before mark died a young boy in two classes behind mark went to bed one night and told his dad my head really hurts dad and the father reasoned that the whole family had had the flu and so he just told him go to bed you're going to be fine you have the flu That next morning, that father carried that boy out of his house in a body bag. He had a brain aneurysm, and he died. And I remember when they brought his body to the church for the funeral. I was in the sanctuary all by myself a couple of hours before the funeral, and I was there with, his name was Kelly, and he was dressed in typical teenager clothes. And I just stood there, and I looked at that body, and I said, Lord, please, please don't ever let this happen to us. I don't know how I could survive that. Please don't let this happen to us. The night Mark was killed, Kelly's father, about 2 o'clock in the morning, came through our back door. And I looked up and I saw him coming in. This is after we left the hospital. And he was the last person on the face of this earth I wanted to see. Hmm. Because he belonged to a club I didn't want to join. What had happened to him had now happened to us. And I can honestly sit here today and tell you 10 years later, if you had asked me on July the 5th, the day before Mark died, if on July the 6th he would die and I would survive it, I would have told you, no, there's no conceivable way that would happen. But we have learned this is not about us. It's about the glory of God in us. His grace sustains. That's why our ministry is called In His Grip. The, the ministry of Mark Inc. Ministries is to refer us to the fact that there are times when we're not holding on to him, when he's holding us firmly in the grip of his grace. And that's what this is all about. It's about God's grace to us even though there are times when we don't feel like he's holding on to us.
0: Will you see Mark again?
1: Absolutely. Every day takes us closer to that moment because, not because Mark was a good kid, not because everybody goes to heaven, but because as a child and then later as a teenager, he reaffirmed that he needed Jesus as his Savior, and he asked Christ to come into his life, and he asked him to forgive him of his sins. And in fact, after we lost Mark, we were cleaning out his room, and I found his journal that he had kept a couple years before that Chuck had assigned him verses every day and throughout that journal we saw the reflection of his relationship to Christ and then we found a report that he had done for school where he had written out his testimony of how he knew Jesus as a Savior. And I share that faith in Christ and that is what has given us purpose. Does it still hurt? Do I still cry? Do I, I miss my son? Absolutely. Hmm. Every time our family gathers, I miss him. And I think of what we will never have, because Mark is gone. But I have absolute assurance that one day that pain will be completely wiped away, and the tears will be gone. You
2: see, that's the worldview. That's the heavenly perspective. That's seeing things from God's perspective. That's what wisdom is. That's a definition of wisdom, seeing things from God's perspective. A man from this church called me he said, so-and-so died. He was a member of a pagan motorcycle gang. Would you do the funeral? I said, what better place to share the gospel? All kinds of unbelievers would be there. This church parking lot was packed with motorcycles from not just that gang, but from rival gangs. They all came in uh, in their motorcycle get-ups. I did not know this man I was burying. My, My goal, my objective that day was to share the gospel. But as that service unfolded, they listened intently, because I talked about the one way to heaven. There's but one way to eternal life. All people do not go to heaven simply because you wish it that way. And the clear message that came from his friends and his relatives was, this man was A, B, C, and D, therefore he's going to heaven. They even toasted him with beer at their special parties where they were saying that, sure, he's in heaven right now, drunk as he could be looking down on us, uh, swearing at us, and cursing us. I mean, this this was their thinking. And even though that may be an extreme representation of what we're trying to say, it's nonetheless a cultural representation that if you're a good father, a good mother, a good husband, a good this, a good that, that all people eventually go to heaven. And that is simply not what the Bible teaches, that we must come to understand what faith in Jesus Christ is all about. And if we're ever going to survive the death of a loved one, we need to understand who the author of life is and we need to know him. And the only way you can know him is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ.
0: But what about that person who died? Less than a year ago I lost a dad in a tractor accident, someone I'd been praying for for 20 some years and he died and I don't know in those last moments mm. whether he came to Christ or not. Right. What hope do I have that my dad could be in heaven?
2: I went through the same thing. My father died in my arms when he was 51 years old. And I do not know whether my father ever trusted Christ as his Savior. He heard the gospel. The only answer I have for that is we have to commit these people into the hands of a merciful and a loving God who does all things well. I think we're going to be very surprised when we get to heaven as to who is there. I think we're going to be equally surprised or more surprised by who's not there. God is the one who is the arbiter of life and the arbiter of death. He is the one who decides who will receive his eternal promise and who will not. And so we have to entrust the people we're not sure of into the hands of that merciful and loving God, trusting that in his sovereignty does all things well.
0: Do you think that's why the thief on the cross came to Christ in his dying moment, to give us hope?
2: I think that thief on the cross, you gotta remember something about him, he too cursed Christ. The Bible tells us that both thieves, between the hours of nine and three, both of those thieves cursed him and ridiculed him and mocked him. But that one thief saw something in Christ in those closing moments that changed his mind. I believe the love of Christ reached out to him, and Mm. he saw, perhaps heard in the silence of Christ, maybe he heard in the silence of Christ, the great love of God, and that's when he changed his mind. He said, this man's done nothing wrong. We deserve what we're getting. He's done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Simple, childlike faith, believing that this man dying beside him was truly the son of God. Maybe the Roman centurion who claimed him to be the son of God. Maybe Nicodemus who claimed his body. Maybe these men had the same experience. God is the one who decides who has eternal life and who doesn't. It's our job to share the gospel. It's our task to tell people about the love of Christ but not some sort of universal belief that says, just be a good person and we'll all get there. Well, what's good? What constitutes good? And if you've lost a loved one and you don't know whether or not they're in heaven, you need to pray that God would show you in your life the direction you need to take with your life. There's nothing you can do to change the course of those who have gone before us. You can't pray them out of some nebulous place. You can't wish them into heaven. You can't do something to somehow warrant them eternal life. That's not what the Bible teaches. But you can change the direction of your life. You can trust Christ as your savior. And that, to me, is the most important thing we need to do when we're faced with death.
0: Here it is 10 years later. How has Mark's death changed you?
2: Well, Tom, we measure our lives before Mark's death and after Mark's death. It's clearly a watershed moment in our lives. The ministry opportunities that God has opened to us are, are enormous. None of them, absolutely none of them, are worth our son's death. We have people tell us all the time, look at what God's done with your ministry since Mark died. Well, give us our son back and take those ministry opportunities away and we would be happy. But having said that, God has truly advanced our ministry in ways we never dreamed possible. He's forged us ahead to do things and to write things and to say things and to preach things that we believe have changed people's lives. We believe God is using us in in valuable ways. And one of these days he's going to show us what his justice and his holiness looks like in our lives. I think that when we're raising our children and seeing our grandchildren, there's a sense of awe, a sense of majesty when we realize we don't own these kids. They're, They're on loan to us. That God is the one who who gave them to us, and God is the one who can take them away. I hope he doesn't. If, if it does happen, then my prayer is that God would give us the grace to,
1: to endure it.
0: God is faithful and you can trust him.
1: I believe that's true.
0: To hear more about the better's journey and the lessons God taught them as a result of Mark's death, we invite you to visit our website, email us, or call us for additional resources. Let us suggest you request several messages Chuck gave shortly after Mark's death. Those titles are Surprised by Suffering, When God Doesn't Make Sense, and God Will Make a Way. Contact us by writing to Chuck and Sharon Betters, care of Mark Inc. Ministries, 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear Delaware 19701. Call us toll free at 1-877-MARK-INC. Our website address for additional resource information or to email us is www.markinc.org. That's markinc.org.